Hi, I'm Phoebe Lovett, and this is Deep Read, a podcast where I have in-depth conversations with big thinkers about big ideas. Every episode of the series is accompanied by a further reading list, which you can access at public-library.online. Hi, welcome back to Deep Read. My guest today is the broadcaster and writer Zakia Sewell. You might know Zakia's name from NTS Radio, where she currently holds down the breakfast slot on Thursday and Friday mornings. She's also produced and hosted several audio documentary series for the BBC, in which she explores, among other things, ideas of Britishness past and present by following ancient thread lines of music, nature and her own rich mixed heritage. On top of that, she's written eloquently about the connections and intersections of these topics for a range of publications and... As I can attest, she's an excellent club DJ, so basically a woman of many, many talents. I really loved this conversation with Zakia. She's got such a brilliant mind, and I hope you do too. Thank you so much for making the time to do this, Zakia. I've been listening to your NTS shows for a while now. Obviously, I used to the Saturday morning one, and now very much enjoyed your transition to, to Thursdays and Fridays. But for doing the research for this podcast, I obviously went on a bit of a Zakia deep dive. I feel like, <laughs> you know, you like really intensely research someone for a short period of time. You're like, I feel like I know too much. But <laughs> obviously, it's all stuff that you've put into the public domain, no actual stalking. And, you know, you've got this really interesting body of work, which spans so many different subjects. But it's been really interesting to read about your family and your you know your lineage and from both sides but so interesting and rich and so many different influences like I just wondered for anyone who's not a a Zakia super fan (laughs) although they should be (laughs) if you could just tell me a little bit about about that background yeah I mean I guess because in some respects you know there have been some kind of we all have our challenges growing up and I think that for me sort of really delving into my history delving into the sort of the family story has been a big part of sort of coming through and healing and sort of moving on from some of the kind of difficult things that I've experienced in my life so in that sense it's kind of I I often think about why uh, you know these in my work and I do think it is it's kind of like cathartic Mm. so you know, I was brought up in London. I was brought up in a place called Hounslow, which is like very close to Heathrow Airport, Zone mm-hmm. Six. It's not, it's not the most sort of lovely, lovely part of the city, but like you know, it was quite rich culturally in ways. It was very diverse, and I grew up in quite like a musical household. My dad and my mum were both musicians, like you know, on the side, not really professionally or anything like that. So I grew up in quite like a a musical household. And a household kind of, I guess, full of ideas. My dad's like, you know, loves reading. And it was quite, yeah, I was quite sort of culturally stimulated, I guess, and privileged in that way as like a young person. My mum's family are from Bedford, but they came over from a place called Karakou, which is in the Eastern Caribbean in the 60s. So I've kind of got that mixed identity and that, you know, going back to this idea of catharsis or almost Mm. these kind of knotty parts of my identity sort of forming inspiration for my work, that kind of in-betweenness of being between England on my dad's side of the family and and the Caribbean has also like sort of been a big part of 
my practice and things that I explore in my work. So, so there's sort of Hounslow, there's Karakou, and then there's also Wales, where I spent a lot of my childhood with my grandparents and sort of, you know, fl- flying between, like going between this very urban and like, well, suburban <laughs> and sort of, you know, grey and sort of built up environment of Hounslow and then spending my summer holidays and my, yeah, spending all my school holidays in Wales in this sort of mythical, wild, green landscape. And mm. I do feel like all these all these elements, of course, have sort of made me who I am, but they're also a kind of sources that I draw upon and um, for ideas and for inspiration across across the work that I do. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, from what I've read, that sort of like rural landscape of Wales that you spent so much time in as a child has obviously sparked a lot of thought for you about, you know, the meaning of land and, and of nature and the significance that that's played for you, how it interweaves with music and the development of culture, like how those two things intersect and and obviously made this amazing audio documentary which I binged over the weekend called My Albion which I mean I'd love you to describe it in your own words but I guess it was kind of an exploration of like what that land means to you as a woman who's both of it and in some ways not. Yeah I mean yeah so My Albion was a four-part series that I made for BBC Radio 4 back in 2020 and the the inspiration from the series has came from this sort of idea that I've sort of been carrying around me for a while of about this band called Pentangle, which is like a folk band from the sixties that my dad introduced me to. And again, I think this theme of in betweenness I think comes comes out in a lot of my work or these kind of like unlikely juxtapositions or combinations. Because when mm. I discover when my dad <laughs> took me to this Pentangle gig as a I love the visual. Old, I was yeah I was actually 50 I think it was 14 or 15 and I was I was a chav I was like a wannabe rude girl I was an aspiring rude girl at the time and like it was such a kind of the the effect that that music had on me was very unexpected because at that time I was you know listening to like grime and R&B and I was uh, my like trying to gel back my baby hair even though it's too thick and frizzy and it would never stay and you know I was very much like in that kind of opposite cultural form whatever opposite cultural sphere and then my dad took me to see this pentangle gig which is this old kind of English folk music that sort of seems to come from an ancient time and something about that music really spoke to me despite it being the kind of opposite of what I had listening to and despite the fact that my dad had taken me because so often we reject what our parents kind of put on us but this music it had quite a profound effect on me and this Pentangle album in particular, it's an album called Basket of Light, I think it was recorded in 1969, 1969. And it sort of stayed with me like from the age of 15 until today, although for many years I sort of hid that this music, you know, that I had this connection to this music. Yeah. Somehow it kind of symbolised this, a connection to Britain, a connection to this sort of like pagany past, but also a question about whether well a why I liked it and also whether I should like it and you know what my you know what is my connection to this place and to this history so that was the sort of starting point of the series and then we sort of me and a producer Alan Hall who I worked on with it we sort of developed it into a sort of bigger idea thinking about belonging and not belonging about Britishness about stories of 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 the nation 
and about this sort of undercover history or these sort of lesser known stories of Albion. Albion is like the the ancient place name for Britain mm. and it's sort of trying to uncover stories from the kind of deeper past that weren't that were more appealing to me um that weren't sort of tied up in colonial history that like spoke a very different character of Britishness as the series went on as we did more research you sort of find that you can't really escape those dark aspects of the no. history that they bleed into even those nice kind of fantasy versions of like a pagan past or like the stone circles right. or whatever like you can't really escape that darkness and so yeah. about a kind of almost like a quest or a search for new visions new myths new stories that could somehow you know hold that darkness and also you know but also kind of evoke a sense of hope about the future of the country so that in and I mean there was a lot in the series but that that's a kind of long-winded way of explaining it it's really interesting line of like intellectual inquiry I found it so fascinating I know a bit about paganism <laughs> my own my own readings and I you know I love that kind of concept of like I guess it's like a reverence for nature is essentially how I understand it sort of like organizing your life around seasons and the rhythms mm -hmm. of nature but as you say you know there's so much about British culture that feels deeply that is deeply shameful and sort of you know, still hasn't really been reckoned with, although hopefully that reckoning has begun. It was kind of interesting to listen to you explore these facets of Englishness or Britishness that do seem worthy of, like, remembrance or, you know, celebration. They are kind of beautiful, those pagan and folkloric traditions, but equally sort of, as you say, come to the conclusion that it's impossible to separate. I think there was one point where you interview Morris dancers and find out that some of them still do it in, in blackface and that they mm. refuse to denounce that. I was just wondering, like, obviously the final episode is about you sort of like beginning that search for new visions of Britain that might sort of help us move forward. Like, how do you, how do you feel about Britain now? Like where, where do you find sort of inspiration in contemporary culture? Cause obviously so much of it is deeply bleak, right now. <laughs> mm. Now I used to work in a record shop called Honest John's yeah. and when I was there I kind of really developed a fascination for sort of folk music from around the world and I used to spend hours going through these CDs of various different ethnomusicologists and you know that is a whole other question a whole other <laughs> kind of subject because there's a lot of problems with that whole thing but like still you know Hugh Tracy, Alan Lomax, these people who went around the world and like you know documented these traditional music and, and like traditions from from across the world and you know what I think drew, drew me to English folk culture is that there's this kind of sense in which all that stuff happens somewhere else right mm. that's like it's often European ethnomusicologists or kind of researchers who go out there out into the world to go and seek out these traditions and mm. and and there's a sense that it all happens elsewhere yeah and what I find, I think it's quite humbling to realise that in this country that those same things happen and it kind of undercuts that narrative of British superiority that is, to me, tied up in so many of our national stories and symbols. Mm. Rural Britannia, like, you know, even the sort of the lions and the, the sort of pomp and sort of entitlement of so many kind of British symbols that suggests a kind of, yeah, a superiority. And that's also kind of what underpinned the, whole, you know, the empire. So to me, finding those kind of grassroots traditions here that say, 
mark the changing of the seasons or mark the solstice and to know that actually that connects this country and the people who've inhabited this land and this landscape um, with people across the world. You know, that to me is a kind of hopeful and promising discovery to make. And also for me personally, I've also done some work exploring the traditions of my, you know, my mum's family's, um, you know, country and heritage in Karakou and again to find those kind of for me as a you know person of mixed heritage with all the conflicts and complications that that brings to find those like meeting places and points of connection to seek out what is shared you know is something that I find you know that is quite healing for me personally and you know that feels feels important in such a kind of uh, time of division and, and and conflict. And I think the division and conflict is necessary and inevitable and needs to be there. And the kind of stories, you know, that the seeking out of that darkness and the exposing of those dark histories is absolutely integral to us moving on as a nation. But I think it's also parallel to that. I think there also has to come, a, there has to be a kind of a seeking out of points of connection. So back to your question, in terms of like what is in contemporary culture that that stimulates me or that gives me hope, I think it is the fusions. It's the it's mm. the kind of it's the unlikely fusions. It's the it's it's where like in a way, as a result of all those fucked up histories, you know, like Afrobeats or like you know, so much so much kind of even just like the kind of Caribbean food and things like that being so like becoming part of England, you know, British culture, these are the kind of beautiful things that come out of these negative histories and mm. the kind of incredible fusions in music, in arts and culture that are like a result of these like um, histories of colonialism and, and, you know, darker mm. histories that have moved people around the globe. So I think, I can't think of specifics, but I think just in general, fusion and interplay is what kind of gives me hope and sort of inspires me. Yeah, for sure. I agree. I mean, it's obviously part of like the reckoning of the past few years is sort of letting go of part of this sort of like investment, which I think is relatively London specific, although I'm sure there's other cities in the UK that feel it of like the celebration of the, of the multiculturalism of London, which is something that rightfully should be celebrated. And I agree with you, like is the only thing about, about this country that really sort of gives me, you know, that I find inspiring about it, particularly as it, as it plays out into music. Like when I feel really disillusioned with the UK and, I think, but there's still the music and the music is endlessly generative. But I read a really interesting Zadie Smith piece a couple of years ago where she sort of like kind of had to not retract, but revisit like, I guess, sort of the championing of, of the multicultural utopia that she sort of presented in some of her early works, which mm. is like kind of how I feel like I grew up experiencing London in the you know late 90s, whatever, mm. and now obviously have a bit more of a nuanced understanding of what that really means for different people. But I, I fully agree with you that that music is always like this endlessly inspiring generative part of, of that culture. I'm really intrigued by the way that you sort of bring these two facets of your, your brain together, this like obviously like big intellectual capacity and then amazing taste in music and like capacity for understanding that and putting it together in artful ways like do those parts of your brain sort of like do they work together always or I don't it's so it's hard for me to imagine like having some being connected to something that's so sort of like um, emotive and then also like being doing something that's so cerebral yeah it's it's a funny one because 
it's something that now I feel like is kind of coming together a bit more in my work and life. But I often have felt almost quite, quite split between the two. Like I went to a very academic university. Like I went to Oxford. I studied English literature when I was there. I had a really difficult time there because I was sort of, you know, I came from like a state school and like a college and just sort of spat out into this insane kind of intellectual, intellectually challenging environment, also socially challenging environment. And it's that place is like a boot camp. You're sort of, mm. it's like, you know, it's, you're just exercising this intellectual muscle, but yeah. all of the other, all of your other faculties or other aspects of your being are completely, completely neglected. Yeah. And so I felt when I, when I left Oxford, I was like completely lopsided. I was like top heavy. But, you know, I think, but like, I think anyway, because of my story, because experience because like my my mum like as as you'll know as, as like you know in my work I've explored my mum's got schizophrenia this idea of mental health and mental well-being has also been like a big part yeah. of my story and a big part of so I feel like I've always understood the need to sort of balance those two things mm. out so so you know I struggled at Oxford and when I came back I was like I don't want to do anything intellectual ever again I'm just like <laughs> so done with that and also I saw the sort of toxicity of that environment and that yeah. kind of you know, only seeing the world through an, intellect, an intellectual lens and believing that you can be purely rational and objective and, mm. you know, that your, your feelings and that your kind of bodily experience shouldn't come in the way of your intellectual rigour. And I just don't believe that that is even possible or mm. true. And I don't, I don't believe in that. I don't believe that creates the best work. I don't believe that generates the most interesting conversations, this sort of idea of being able to split the two. So when I when I finished at uni, I was like, I just want to go towards music. I started working at a record shop. I started DJing. I, saw, I just kind of, I just wanted to exercise a different muscle. I felt yeah. my lopsidedness. Yeah. But eventually, you know, I, I kind of started working in radio production, which in a way is a kind of like a mixture of the two because you've got that sonic element you've got that intuitive creative part about like you know which music do you put in and the atmos and the field recordings and that sort of you know that that creative element as well as the sort of intellectual rigor of building a narrative and da da da, da. so mm. I felt like I felt like radio documentary was quite a nice meeting place for those two parts of me and yeah I try as much to bring these parts together because I think too much of any one thing is not is not a good thing and I can get into a really kind of heady state of overthinking and da 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 and like <laughs> it's really important for me to kind of like balance that out by like going out dancing or just like DJing and there's sort of a totally different muscle and a totally different part and I think that that like that again going back to this idea of the in-betweenness or this sort of this sort of juxtaposition and the need to find balance between opposite poles I think that what I experience as an individual in that sense, sort of between the intellectual and the creative or the feeling, let's say, that's also a struggle, I think, as a as a nation or collectively in the West that we have, you know, the need to sort of balance, balance that out. And of course, it's gendered. And there, I mean, that is a whole nother conversation in itself. But I think it's so important to sort of to, to balance to balance those two things so I that's that's where I like to sit I like to sit in between the intellectual and that more kind of feeling intuitive uh, you know um other otherworldly um place and I try to express that I guess in in, in what I do yeah you do it very well and I, think, <laughs> I, I totally hear you and obviously there's sort of like a lot of discourse now about how 
you know, the West is totally like spiritually bereft, disconnected, you know, disembodied, like totally stuck in intellectual, rational narratives about how things should be, no connection to the body, the soul, da, da, da. And, but just when you were talking, I was thinking about like, you know, the explorations of the cultures that you've done, the ancient cultures of, of Britain not, are not about that. They're much more connected to nature and, and spirituality in a way that, you know, they're kind of like a bit, for a want of a better word, like a bit woo-woo, you know? Oh, woo-woo, they're, they're definitely woo-woo. And I guess it's the, it's the mythological, you know, and I think it's, again, bringing it back to this colonial history, the whole idea of like, of Western, or let's, let's just say, let's, let's just narrow it down to Britain. The whole idea of kind of British superiority when the imperialists went out and encountered these other cultures around the world was, you know, so apparently these people, so the people that they encountered in the eyes of the British didn't have civilization mm. and they were still in a kind of mythical, spiritual worldview that was deemed to be primitive. Mm. And, you know, this, this was, you know, it's tied to the kind of the, the enlightenment period in this country yeah. where, yeah. you know, there was a massive schism between the sort of mythical, magical, spiritual worldview and the kind of burgeoning, empiricist, rational, objective sort of worldview. And there was a sort of split at that time. And therefore, this sort of idea of superiority was sort of built on that distinction. And I think what we're, we've sort of, We've reached the apex, I think, as as you know, the West has reached the apex potentially of this sort of purely objective, rational, scientific view, and we've realised that it doesn't actually help us. It doesn't actually solve a lot. We still fucked up the planet. Yeah. People are miserable, and also yeah. like awful, atrocious world happenings and genocides and stuff like that can be justified using rational means. We realise that that is not enough. That doesn't tell the whole story. And I think that is why at this moment there is a kind of reaching out to to that mythical, magical worldview again, you know, to like maybe the indigenous people do know something about the kind of ecosystems of the world. And maybe there is, onto something. maybe there is all those people that we kind of, that, well, not we, I'm not, I'm not being part of that, but that were slaughtered, you know, perhaps they fucking knew some stuff. <laughs> you yeah. know, perhaps they knew some things and they, they, some of that knowledge that has been lost might help us now. So I do think, you know, my, the reason that I'm drawn to this mythical, magical view in England is, is to say, you know, there is value in this and that, it, that it, you know, it can, in, in recognising that that is, that that is also part of this place, you know, it might help people to realise, you know, what has been lost or what was sort of wrongly rejected or wrongly um, criticised um, else, elsewhere. But it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a huge, it's a huge question. It's a huge problem. And, and as, as you know, the, even the idea of woo-woo, it's still, there's still so much kind of cynicism about that idea. Like, I mean, I love woo-woo just to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> call into woo-woo. <laughs> but, you know, that, like Britain is still so um, like hilariously buttoned up about you know anything that it perceives to be in that realm obviously there's been a an opening um uh, there's much more receptiveness to to as you say sort of like all these ancient cultures and civilizations that britain once went out to destroy and now that like, mm, perhaps they were on something particularly mm. in their understanding of like stewardship of the land and and you know protection of the land um I, I do feel like there's a, I mean, like everything now, sort of like a lot of access to those ideas now comes through this sort of like commodified Instagram mm. ad kind of channels, which I find personally a bit of a turn off and like 
feel like there's a lot of conflation of like spiritual language with essentially just like material aspiration which is something I'm always trying to navigate you know like mm. ideas of manifestation and and I don't know just mm. are often like I just want more shit so it's it's a confusing thing to navigate and and it's also hard to access when you don't have regular access to nature you know and, which is obviously such a pivotal part of it do you do you get into nature a lot is that like still a big part of your life Unfortunately, I'm not really getting into nature as much as I would like. I guess one of the problems of living in London compared to other cities is that it's actually quite hard to get into a wild bit of countryside. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, you can get to Kent or you can get, you can sort of, you can get to the outskirts of London quite easily, but there are actually few places in England that were particularly, you know, within a three hour kind of radius of, of London that actually have that wild feeling but I try as much as I can to sort of connect with nature and it's definitely something it's so easy to sort of just get sucked into city living and not take take a breath I want to do it more I need to get back into the into the habit for sure it is it is harder than it feels like it should be it's not a very big country like you feel like you should be able to just sort of tap into that and obviously lots of it parts of this country are extremely beautiful Mm. Are there other places you've been in the world where you've sort of like felt that sort of spiritual connection or reverence for the land outside of the UK? Yeah, this is it's, this is what's interesting because I have, you know, in so many ways, I'm so jaded and fed up with this country. And like it's so it just feels like it's so toxic at the moment, you know, like a, it's all this sort of toxicity, all these kind of ghosts of the past and unresolved traumas are just sort of like very much on mm. the surface mm. and so in some ways I'm so I'm just so fed up with it but I I I don't I don't I, there is something about the landscape here and maybe it's just due to my childhood in Wales or I don't I don't know what it is but I get a feeling in Britain in in certain landscapes so I that I don't get in other places I mean mm. unfortunately I wasn't I didn't really get to spend a lot of time in Karakou mm. growing up and yeah. I've been back a few times but when I've been there I've kind of been visiting family and more of like the villages I haven't really had that opportunity to like go walking in the landscape to actually feel yeah. what the island feels like apart from away from the sort of the settlement so that is something that I'd really like to do I'd like to yeah. sort of get in the jungle but I'm always reminded like I remember being in Colombia and like with with my best friend like quite a few years ago and being in the jungle and just being reminded of Wales so it's it's strange I do have this sort of weird tie to like this Wales, place. But hotter. <laughs> yeah but kind of better but I was a bit more humid <laughs> yeah exactly um so yeah I don't know I do there is a kind of strange tug a strange pull attachment that I do have to this particular landscape and I guess that's sort of what I've been exploring you know what why is that what is that about and why does it feel different here to other places yeah because when I, I listened to the other um documentary you made about your relationship with your mum Amy who you know obviously you've had this challenging dynamic of of navigating her struggles with schizophrenia as you say it was really moving to listen to and I read about it also I just um read the, the book that you've contributed an essay to uh, mm. this woman's work mm. yeah so you obviously write more about it there and and I think you you're sort of ex in the book you're exploring it more through going back to her, to Karaku such a lyrical sounding place mm. it's like a little bird call isn't it Karaku. <laughs> um, but I think it was in the audio document she said that she doesn't really feel that she's from there either is that right 
Yeah, I mean, she she was born in Bedford and, you know, her relationship with her family was very complicated. So I think as a result of that, she kind of, she was quite disconnected from her own blackness and her own roots and heritage. And that is sort of, yeah, she's my mum. So that kind of, that kind of extended to me. I only went to Karakou when I was like one and then we went back when I was 17. So, and funnily enough, it was sort of, through the music, through the music of Alan, like Alan Lomax, the ethnomusicologist went there in uh, the 60s and recorded a lot of the music. And yeah, it was at Honest John's at this record shop, I discovered the CD. And that was what mm. sort of, that was sort of like what reconnected me to, to Karakou and then resulted in me going back and making a documentary about the traditions there. So, you know, I've had to find my own connection through roundabout, roundabout ways, but not, it wasn't that sort of, kind of natural flow of heritage through the family, mm. through your bloodline, you might say. Yeah. Obviously with my mum's mental illness, that kind of adds another layer of kind of um, fragmentation or, or, or disconnection. So, and I think we've explored, you know, a lot the idea of, you know, looking at my mum's mental health issues through the prism of that, that lineage, through the prism of that heritage. You know, it's, mm. you know, people of Caribbean descent are so massively overrepresented in mental health services in Britain and obviously there are kind of systemic issues there but there's also a kind of there's you know there are ideas of intergenerational trauma and things like that yeah. that are, are kind of fascinating too so that makes Karakou a kind of a beautiful paradise but also complicated yeah. and I guess that's that's something that I um, sort of continue will continue to explore. Yeah I'm sure there's I mean as you say that's like generations of unpacking and and you, I think you write about sort of like how you came to understand her like voices that she'd heard as sort of like past, you know, like the echoes of, of past trauma, which is like a incredibly, I mean, it's very like moving, rich way to understand it, but it's, that's pretty, that's very, that's very intense, very, not something you can just sort of like wrap up in a quick a quick one-stop shop but she is she is amazing your mum I've listened to shows that she you've and her done together it is like very charming listening to you guys interact she's got such an amazing personality mm. okay back on <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know I need to get on the show everyone's like when's Amy coming on the show I'm like all right all right what about me <laughs> um no I think as I said you know I think as I said at the beginning like in some ways, yeah, it can be quite exposing, you know, putting all your family history and all of your problem problems <laughs> out in the public yeah. sphere. But I think, you know, there is definitely something cathartic about working through these things uh, via creative means and also, you know, actually sharing, you know, making these discussions more public because I think there's so much stigma around these questions around mental health. And I have yeah. had lots of people message me and say that they've also had a mum with schizophrenia or with mental health issues yeah. or family members. And and actually to sort of hear these stories represented can be sort of healing for others. So I do, I do think there is, that's that's the sort of, it's, it can be cathartic for me, but also to know that um, you're also providing others, for, you know, you're providing little gateways for others to feel things and, for sure, because yeah. I think particularly with the mother-daughter dynamic, which is just so like sanctified in our culture that it's almost like people don't want to talk about that being difficult. It's like you're allowed to have quote-unquote daddy issues all day. Mm -hmm. Everyone's got daddy issues. But when it's talked about like an exploration of difficulties with your relationship with your mother, it's like feels much more tender in a way to unpack. Mm -hmm. 
So you referenced that you're, you've got a book in you, which I won't ask you about because <laughs> I'm sure it's still very much in the development stage. But I was just wondering, like, what, you know, what are your sort of like lines of thought like now? Are there things that you are reading or thinking about or want to sort of delve into further? Yeah, I guess, yeah, there's sort of the Albion idea, the Albion series is something that's sort of like still living and giving and still seems to have a kind of a life beyond, you know, it's, I still get people messaging me about it and there's still a kind of excitement and intrigue about that. So I am, I'm like thinking about trying to do some writing based on that and sort of expanding the themes of the series and, and I guess sort of, I don't know. I guess like everything we've talked about today, all this somehow kind of comes into this idea. I feel like there will be, there'll be many sort of projects that kind of, that will echo some of the stuff that we've been talking about because it's, it, there's, there's, there's such sort of big ideas. It's quite difficult to deal with in one series or one yeah. book or one whatever, or one essay, you know? So I thought there'll kind of, there'll be a kind of continuous rippling of, of some of these thoughts throughout various bits and bobs that I do but yeah there is a kind of writing project that's underway that I'm sort of bat- battling with grappling with at the moment that is quite a different medium to radio obviously and so it comes with sort of new challenges so that's that's kind of what that's sort of what um what I'm thinking about at, at the moment do you like writing I do yeah I yeah. do I do it's sort of uh Although that I get kind of traumatic recall of like writing essays when I was at uni, I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> yeah, turn them out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I do. I, I do enjoy it, and I think particularly there's something magical that happens when you just sort of start and you don't know where you're going, and things just flow out of you, and that can be quite a sort of woo-woo spiritual. I'm like you, I don't like that word, but you know, there's quite something quite cosmic about that. That, and you sort of wonder where's this all coming from. I quite like that that idea of you know channeling somehow that you're just sort of letting something throw, flow through you that needs to come out into the world and so as much as I'm finding it a bit difficult at the moment I feel like there is a kind of there's a need for these sorts of ideas these stories to be told and these conversations to be had and somehow for some reason I seem to be a person that's part of that conversation so yeah, I mean, <laughs> reluctantly <laughs> Well, but I think, you know, as we said, sort of like the crisis of of the UK right now and the West at large is this sort of sense of spiritual bereftness and like also this feeling that there's nothing to connect back to. And that leads to a lot of people like appropriating the sort of spiritual ancient traditions of other countries to varying (laughs) levels of cringe and, and inappropriateness. But I think there's so much merit and value in in the idea of like British people being able to, and anyone, be able to access those ideas and and sort of like investigate um, even a problematic heritage, but like a heritage with which had sort of something to to grip onto beyond these ideas of like nationhood, patriotism, and empire, which are like as you say, sort of like the still the ideas that like dominate our culture in so many ways, you know, from like the insignia and iconography to the language, to the national anthem, to Mm. the fucking week, four days off for the Jubilee, like, you know, Mm. which starts tomorrow. Like, you know, it's still those sort of like relics of this dark past is still very present. So I think anything that like offers a counter narrative is super helpful. Definitely. And again, you know, 
all these sort of themes are kind of interwoven for me because you know and I think about what you talked about in my essay about you know these echoes of the past you yeah. know reverberating into the present and you know I've done a lot of therapy <laughs> and anyone who has done done therapy will kind of know that a sort of crucial in starting afresh in sort of becoming anew in sort of moving on from the darkness the traumas the the difficulties of the past is facing them and I think that that kind of idea can be applied to the nation mm. you know that and that there has to be a reckoning and that's not necessarily people are so afraid that to sort of look into the past means that your future is almost damned or cursed mm. but it's sort of mm. the opposite it's like as long as these stories remain underground as long as these histories are sort of suppressed they can they sort of they sort of rule you from from behind the scenes without yeah. you realizing and they fester and it kind of just gets worse and worse so I guess you know I hope that my in my work I see part of my work is applying that kind of therapeutic process almost to the nation and saying that you know the only way for there to be any kind of hopeful future is to sort of let it be a reckoning an acceptance and a sort of an acceptance of the past and an admittance and 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 that only when that's happened only when we've really sort of dug into the depths and shone a every dark crevice will we ever be able to sort of move on as a, as a nation. And I think that there's a lots of people working on that project in different ways across the discipline. And I, I do think there is hope, but I think there's, the, you know, what we're experiencing right now is a major backlash to the work that is it's already underway. You know, it can't be stopped. Yeah. And um, it's sort of like, you know, the last dying gasp of, of, of a kind of, you know, of a way of being that is that will be no longer hopefully so yeah it might take 400 years though that's the only problem (laughs) (laughs) or longer better better get cracking then um i know you've got a meeting so i don't want to hold you up for any longer but thank you so much for taking the time to do this i really appreciate it It was very insightful to hear even more and obviously i'll be listening to nts show so um see you on um, nts where i'll be back to talking about what socks i like and no, but with a healthy di- healthy we didn't really get a chance to discuss it but a healthy mix of like you know interesting theory and like um you get some great thinkers on there which is i think really i love it personally i think it's a really nice counterbalance to the music which i also love but i'm down for a bit of i'm down for a bit of smart chat at 10 a.m my brain's warmed up by then so um anyway uh i shall keep listening and i hope you have a lovely weekend thank you again fingers crossed this worked (laughs) (laughs) i think it did i think i hope that um, i meet you in real life soon it's kind of weird that our paths haven't like physically crossed yet because i feel Mm. like we've got lots of mutual friends and in the same places often but when it does i owe you a drink so thank you again oh yeah pleasure I'll, 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 I'll take you up on that. No, absolutely. <laughs> and and thanks. Take care. Yeah, bye. See you. Bye.